Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. I'm talking today to John Devitt, who founded Transparency International, or TI Ireland, in 2004 and has led TI Ireland's anti-corruption research and whistleblowing support programmes since then. He is author or researcher on numerous reports, including Safe Haven, targeting the proceeds of foreign corruption in Ireland, as well as guidance on the topic of whistleblower protection, ethics and anti-corruption standards. An ethics and communications specialist by training, John holds a first-class MA in ethics from Dublin City University and is a graduate of the University of Limerick and the Public Relations Institute of Ireland. John is here to discuss with me today the latest TI report, Safe Haven, targeting the proceeds of foreign corruption in Ireland. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, John, and thanks for talking to us today. Thanks, Cathy. Firstly, John, congratulations on the publication of Safe Haven. You know, it's a, it's a necessary and important work. It's going to be of huge interest and use, use to our members. So, so congratulations. Just standing back a minute, uh, and, and if you could just talk to us about Transparency International, it will be well known to, to our members and listeners as a, a global anti-corruption coalition. I see you've over 100 independent chapters worldwide. Can you tell me about the work of TI Ireland and how it fits into the work the coalition does globally? Sure. Thanks, Cathy, for, for inviting me on. We have, as you said, we've, we've been around in Ireland since 2004, and TI itself was established, the international organization was established in 1993. Uh, since then, it's grown to a network of 100 people that has a, or 100 organizations or chapters around the world. We're around, I think, about 2,000 staff spread around the world. Uh, we have around five or six staff here in Ireland. Since 2011, we have been operating Ireland's leading helpline for whistleblowers, the Speak Up Helpline. We set up a law centre in 2016, which provides free legal advice to people making protected disclosures or disclosures under the Criminal Justice Act, for example, or the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act. We have been providing support to organisations under a new initiative called Integrity at Work, uh, of which around 30, there are 30 members, including the Gardaí, the Department of Justice, Department of Education, lobbied in the first place back in 20, well, 2009, 2010 for universal law that would protect whistleblowers across economic sectors and, and workplaces, which became the Protected Disclosures Act, advised the, the Department of, of Public Expenditure Reform on, on the text of that act and then lobbied for an EU directive on whistleblowing, which will come into effect at the end of the year. But we've also paid a lot of attention to uh, measures aimed at tackling bribery and corruption, promoted ethical standards around lobbying. So also lobbied for the Lobbying Regulation Act uh, in 2015. And for some time now, we've been looking at Ireland's role in facilitating or acting as a conduit for some of the world's dirty money, which has culminated in this report, which we published a couple of months ago. 
uh, called Safe Haven, and we worked with two experts in 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 this in this field. Professor Colin King, who's now with the University of London, but was with the University of Sussex and is uh, an expert on asset recovery and and AML. And Alex Chance, who has a background in law enforcement and is currently conducting or finishing his PhD on corruption, organized crime, and peace and reconciliation at Trinity College. So the three of us worked together to get this, this study done. And it, as, as the title suggests, it's, it's looking at Ireland's role in, in facilitating or as a home for some of the world's dirty money, in particular proceeds of international corruption, whether that those be embezzled assets from uh, state assets or the proceeds of, of bribery. We've been working on the sidelines, really, because we, we, we don't have the resources to, to do this work and uh, to do as much work on this issue as, as we would like. But we've been supporting our, our colleagues internationally, advising them on, on some of the issues that they, they, they need to be looking at, uh, which we'll touch on in a bit as well, with a view to lobbying international governmental organizations such as the, the World Bank, UN, OECD, FATF and others, uh, with a view to setting standards around beneficial ownership, uh, country by country reporting, and more recently around asset recovery and repatriation. So there's a, a great deal of work being done around this, new international standards being developed with a view to making sure that when assets are, corrupt assets are frozen and recovered, that they are repatriated in a responsible way, that they don't wind back up in, you know, it's Swiss bank accounts, not to trivialise it, but it's important that there are safeguards in place to, to make sure that the money isn't stolen again or isn't used to, used in a way to, to violate basic fundamental human rights, bearing in mind that in, in, in many cases, stolen assets are coming from countries with very weak rule of law and very poor records on 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 the protection of human rights yes it's it's by no means a, a victimless crime john the the report has some really eye-watering numbers in it it quotes the united nations estimates that 2.6 trillion is stolen through corruption each year and they put that in context by saying it's a sum equivalent to more than five percent of global gdp and then the world bank businesses and individuals pay an estimated 1.5 trillion in bribes each year, which amounts to approximately 10 times the value of overseas development assistance, which, you know, as I say, is just staggering. Your recent report, Safe Haven, targeting the proceeds of foreign corruption in Ireland, highlights a number of high profile cases involving the laundering of bribes and embezzled state assets through funds managed in, in Irish based banks and insurance firms. Could you talk about how these cases came about? Yeah, it, it, it appears that in, in the three cases that we're aware of, that of uh, Mohammed Abacha, son of Sani Abacha, former president in Nigeria, and Judah Masirawan, former chief of the tourism Thai, uh, the, the Thai Tourism Authority, and Gulnara Karamova, the daughter of the former president of Uzbekistan, Islam Karamov, that they came to, to the Irish authorities' attention through mutual legal assistance requests or action taken in those countries against the, the three people uh, I mentioned. In the case of the Karamova assets, uh, which were laundered on behalf of a company owned by her through an Irish, an American bank based in the IFSC. It's believed that anywhere between 100 and 300 million US dollars were laundered through funds here in Dublin. Those funds were frozen 
uh, on foot of a request from the US Department of Justice, which was investigating bribes paid by telecommunications companies to Karamova to influence the outcome of a mobile phone license award in, in Uzbekistan. And, and, and we know that Sonny Abacha had stolen, I think in the region of $2 billion US dollars from the state treasury. And much of this money was laundered in financial centers around the world, London, New York, and elsewhere. But of that, around, I think six, 6 million was laundered through life insurance policies here as uh, was the case with the, I think it was about a half a million laundered by uh, Sirawan in, in life insurance policies, which were believed to be the proceeds of bribes paid to her for the rights to promote a, a film festival in, in Bangkok. So by, by far the biggest case involves that of, of Gunara Karamova. Not many of your listeners be aware of her, and I wasn't aware of her until it was brought to my attention by colleagues some time back, that she was something of a celebrity in Uzbekistan. She's the daughter of the former now deceased president of Uzbekistan and fancied herself as something of a Princess Di character. She was a philanthropist. She was a fashion designer. She held a, had a PhD, was also, I think, ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva. I think she considered herself, herself to be something of a Renaissance woman. But behind the scenes, she was reviled in Uzbekistan as someone who was leading essentially an organized crime racket, which would extort businesses in, in Uzbekistan. And I heard people talk about how restaurateurs would fear her eating in their restaurants because they they feared that she would steal the restaurant from her if she liked the food enough. So her, her reputation went before her. And back in 2014, when these allegations initially surfaced or when, when the US Department of Justice began to take action, it was actually earlier than that, but when, when, when the US DOJ began to take action against her and the allegations of bribery and extortion and fraud uh, were made known in Uzbekistan, she started to lose political support uh, in the country. Her own father, who whose health was also failing around the same time, distanced himself from her. And not long afterwards, and after his death, she was, she was placed, I think, under house arrest while he was still alive, but then was was charged with fraud and and corruption and she is now serving around 15 years in prison for her crimes of the 1 billion US dollars that she was believed to have solicited from telecommunications companies to influence the outcome of this um, this telecommunications deal of the, or the, the award of a, a telephone or mobile fel- telephone license it's believed as I said that she she'd laundered about 100 to 300 million US dollars and through uh, funds managed by by an American bank here the American authorities filed that mutual legal, legal assistance request with the Irish Department of Justice who then sought an I uh, an Irish High Court order to have that, that the proceeds of that crime frozen. It's now sitting in an escrow account. We have no idea when the Irish High Court will hear this case again, but we've since written to uh, Minister McEntee to see that if the Irish authorities are to, to repatriate this uh, money back to Uzbekistan, that any memorandum of understanding contains adequate safeguards to prevent that money going missing or its use in a way that might violate 
fundamental human rights in, in, in the country. And that it be subjected as well to, to independent oversight and a degree of civil society participation. There are precedents for such oversight in Kazakhstan, for example. In Switzerland, more, more recently, over 100 million US dollars was repatriated to Uzbekistan and the MOU there contained provisions around transparency and accountability in the disbursement of those funds. But beyond that, I think we need to see a stated commitment to international principles. I know we'll come to the recommendations in the report and later, but the, it's important that not just Ireland, but other countries in which funds are, are being laundered commit to international standards such as the GFAR principles, the Global Forum on Asset Recovery Principles, which is a forum led by the World Bank Star Initiative, that they commit to these standards so that money, when it is frozen, can be repatriated in a way to mitigate the risk of further corruption. We don't want the cycle starting up again. Absolutely. And and, and, and there are there are fears, there are suspicions that even in the case of the, the Boda Foundation example, which I cited a moment ago, the Boda Foundation was essentially a charitable initiative or trust that was set up to allow for better oversight or adequate oversight of the disbursements of repatriated funds back to Uzbekistan and that there, there were some misgivings about how that initiative was conducted too. And it's important that firstly that we agree to international standards by which these funds are dispersed and then that we equip those responsible for overseeing the disbursement with the resources and that they need to, to go about their job and in, in, in an effective way. John, the report suggests that Ireland is uh, has a way to go to address many of the incentives that underpin the laundering of the proceeds of corruption and organised crime through uh, our financial services sector and the wider economy. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about, about these incentives? Yeah, well, I mean, Ireland hosts 250 of the world's leading financial services companies, including half of the world's top 50 banks and around 2.8 trillion in net assets and funds domiciled in the country. So it, it Ireland is a significant player, and not least in, 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 in international services, but not least in, in the hedge fund industry. And, and it is probably the biggest, or said to be the biggest hedge fund administration center in the world with around 40% of hedge fund assets managed here. And I think people need to understand that in many, if not most cases that we're aware of, and certainly in all the cases being brought to, to public light here, the money hasn't been deposited. The stolen money hasn't been deposited in, in, in bank accounts. You know, it's it's been it's been managed in funds, in hedge funds or in other instruments that sometimes fall outside the, the scope of intrusive regulatory oversight. And for example, case of the Bacha and Sirwan cases, there were there were laundered through life insurance policies, which are considered by the Department of Justice to be low risk in national risk assessment for money laundering. There, there are other ways in which and money could be laundered that allows for or doesn't allow for adequate or intrusive regulations, such as through special purpose vehicles, Section 1110 companies. And these SPVs don't necessarily have to register their beneficial ownership right now. I mean, in the particular section of the Criminal Justice Act, which gave rise to the, the RBO, the, reg the Register of, of Beneficial Ownership, hasn't been commenced yet to allow for the owners of SPVs to be registered on the RBO website for those details to be gathered and published. So there are ways in which those who are, are, are facilitating the laundering of, of, of the, the proceeds of organised crime and corruption can escape 
the gaze of the central bank and all the regulatory authorities here. Your, your listeners will be very familiar with the concept of layering or stacking and the way in which money launderers very rarely ever just launder the, the, the stolen loot or the cash they get from drug deals. They'll invest it in some way in, in a legitimate business before that, that business then invests in, whether it be in, in pensions or other funds or CDOs or other complex financial instruments. And by the time the authorities have maybe have sight of or, or are alerted to any suspicious transaction, it may have already been layered three or four times. So it's 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 very difficult sometimes to I, I'm I'm not an investigator, so I, I can't really tell people in this in this space how to, to do their jobs, what to be to be uh, mindful of. But at a policy level, it's important that financial services firms are aware of or are obliged to take additional measures and to apply enhanced customer due diligence in respect of some of these these financial instruments and that the Department of Justice is mindful of the heightened risk around the use of these the, 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 these funds, corporate structures, in a way that doesn't seem to be evidenced so far in, in, in our response to, to tackling this problem. Well, I, I think long before any of our members or listeners are doing their due diligence, I think the criminals have done their due diligence and, and unfortunately, you know, they're one step ahead. They're about five years ahead, I would say. And I, I was pointing this out earlier, I was having a discussion with colleagues from FACTI, the UN initiative around financial transparency. And I mean, legislation moves through the system very slowly. If you're, if you're waiting on laws to be passed to tackle a problem, you're never going to fully tackle it. And there are administrative, quite technical responses that can be taken now that don't require a new program for government or legislation to, to be enacted uh, for us to, to mitigate some of the risks that we're highlighting in this report and for compliance specialists or for the customers to be better able to to detect and, and prevent the, the, the laundering of, of the proceeds of, of organized crime and, and, and corruption. I think in, in some respects as well, a lot of, or if not most of the attention has been paid to the proceeds of organized crime as opposed to corruption. And we, we read a lot about Rolex watches being confiscated from the Kinahans or the Hutches or, you know, these, these people are household names. How many people have heard of Gulnara Karamova? Very few, when I've already pointed out that the amounts frozen by the High Court in respect to Karamova's case are equivalent to all the money frozen at the behest of CAB since 1996, since it was founded. Amounts moving through the system are a multiple of... The, the amounts that, that are frozen from the proceeds of organised crime are minuscule compared to, to the funds that are moving through the system that are laundered on behalf of corrupt officials and their associates. And it's particularly so from, from Russia, Central Asia, and other other regions in which their rule of law is not as as, as strong as it, as it should be. And where kleptocracy has become a way of life, really, as, as part of the system in many respects, and where organised crime and government overlap to a large degree. Yeah. John, a lot of our, our listeners will be familiar with changes in AML legislation since it was introduced in, in 1994, 95. And it's just constantly evolving. We're now up to our sixth AML directive. And the government you know, makes progress in updating and modernising and introducing new measures uh, to prevent and detect money laundering. Despite all of those reforms over the years, you say in the report that Ireland's AML and anti-corruption framework appears to lack strategic direction. Do you want to discuss that a bit? 
bit more? Well, I mean, we have multiple agencies responsible for for tackling AML or addressing the, the, the problem here. And you're aware that Central Bank doesn't have a, a function in criminal enforcement. It's responsible for saying that regulated, regulated entities are uh, meeting their obligations to, to detect and report, uh, prevent, detect and report AML related risks. The government produces, I already mentioned, a national risk assessment aimed at identifying priorities for action. But we've taken a rather fragmented approach just institutionally, but even in respect of uh, the sharing of information amongst these these different bodies. And internationally, although there are platforms like the Egmont Group that allow for for, for more proactive information sharing there, there, there is a, a lack as I said a lack of strategic direction which is which is to be addressed I believe in response to the the Hamilton report which would create a, an anti-corruption or which is one of the outcomes of which is a or should be a a, a national anti-corruption economic crime strategy but we haven't had a, a joint up approach to to addressing these risks and one which which is supported by the resources and clear clear objectives for, for, for action over a set time scale. So I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll, we'll see a clear, coherent national anti-corruption strategy, which will also encompass a response to tackling these these risks. And as I said, much of the attention has been paid to organised crime, which is a priority as it should be, but at the cost of tackling the flow of much larger sums of money through the financial system. And that, that requires joint up thinking, both at a policy and operational level. And we would like to see a, a national strategy aimed at tackling this problem, which acknowledges the risk of, of, this, uh, of this problem. One that also looks more closely at the role, for example, the risk posed by is colloquially known as the, the golden visa scheme, which allows for investors, invest, immigrant investor scheme, which allows international investors to secure residency in Ireland in return for an investment or charitable donation. We're, we're not satisfied that the Department of Justice would have the resources it needs to do the, the due diligence it should be doing on many of the people investing here. It's pretty clear, I mean, even with additional resources that our regulatory agencies would not have the, the capacity to, to act on and investigate many of the cases brought to their attention through STRs, through suspicious transaction reports. We know from the FinCEN file leak that even the US authorities didn't have the resources they needed to, to act on many of the suspicious activity reports coming to their attention. And the FIU here, the Financial Intelligence Unit and the Gardaí are, are receiving upwards of or, or over 24,000 STRs every year. From, from financial institutions. It's pretty clear to me that we, we just don't have the resources we need to, to tackle this problem or uh, a joint up strategy to identify the risks clearly and to to deal with them in a, in a coherent, sustainable way. And nor to, to also acknowledge the incentives I've talked about earlier and, and the opportunities that, that that give rise to the laundering of, of, of these funds. We still, to outlaw the, the use of uh, shelf companies here, you'll find it's, if you just Google company formation, shelf company Ireland, you'll find numerous companies selling these 
uh, shelf companies without or very little obligation on their part to see that those companies are not sold to people acting on behalf of organized criminals or corrupt officials. And even where, as I said, an STR is, is, is filed based on, for example, that the beneficiary of uh, transfer is a politically exposed person. Uh, someone connect a politician or senior public official or someone connected to them. It's not clear that that leads to an investigation, you know, or that yeah. the guardy have it, the capacity to conduct an investigation. So we we need a, a strategy, as I said, that that identifies risks, that ensures that those risks are prioritised for action, that action is taken, and that whatever action is needed is adequately resourced and time bound. If, it, if it's not a smart strategy, it's not a strategy. You know, it's, it's not specific, measurable, achievable, realistic. And and within a set time frame, it's not a strategy. So we, we need to see government commitment to this. And it, with all the best will in the world, and we talk about resourcing agencies and the work that Gardaí do and the need to train Gardaí and, and to recruit more forensic investigators and the need for the accounting and legal profession to be more aware of their obligations too. Unless action is taken at a policy level, it's 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 for nothing. I mean, you you really are playing whack-a-mole here with these risks. You know, you, you'll deal with the problem in one area and it'll raise its head in another. So a coherent strategy is required. And it, also it's recorded at an international level too. Crime is by its nature international, so it, it needs a coordinated international solution because these criminals are mobile and they can just go to another friendly jurisdiction. That's the nature yeah. of it. And it's like, I mean, this money will move like electric current. You know, it'll move through the path, the path of least resistance and close off one channel. Another one will open. And we need to be thinking two, three. You need to be thinking like it's a game of chess. You need to be thinking many more moves ahead. And that's why a strategy is needed to look at emerging risks as well. Because often we we create a a strategy or our national risk assessment will will identify risks, but it's not, unless it's kept up to date, unless you have people, you need to also monitor these risks and analyze them and communicate them then, then your your response is always going to be behind emerging trends. And, and that yeah. that's something that needs to be included. That approach needs to be taken to, to my new strategy that, that, that is adopted. The report also talks about the extent to which corrupt individuals construct multi-layers to hide their illicit activity. And this is this is something that would be familiar to to our listeners, this concept of, of, of layering, as you mentioned earlier. Could you give some examples of this and the sorts of things that our members and listeners should look out for as possible red flags? I feel like I'm, I'm teaching, excuse the, the phrase, grannies to suck eggs here, because I know a lot of your listeners will be a lot more experienced in, in monitoring these risks and reporting on them, advising them than I am. I'm really a lobbyist as much as anything else. I don't have any experience in investigations, although we work closely with whistleblowers. I mean, I, what I know is what I hear. I have to preface whatever I say with that. But as I said, there are, there are risks, I, I think, that have not been identified uh, firstly or, or if, if they've been identified they they don't appear to be shaping policy at a global level I mean one of those risks is is, is the use of loans to launder I mean we talk about layering as if it's you know you move your money from you know a drug deal to through through a laundered business through whether it be a car wash or small shop or whatever it might be and then uh you you, you might launder it and you use the the process of that to invest in 
in another business and so on or in funds. But one area that hasn't really been looked at is, is the use of loans by international credit institutions. We saw this in the case of HSBC in Mexico, which had taken deposits from drug cartels, but then had allowed the same drug cartels or companies acting on their on their behalf. And in many cases, the, the money, the proceeds, I'm talking billions of, of uh, dollars in proceeds of cocaine sales are being laundered through legit, legitimate businesses such as resorts in Cancun and elsewhere. But then those same businesses are borrowing using the collateral they have in those businesses to reinvest in companies on behalf of the cartels. And in some cases, some of, we, we know from HSBC, which is like a household name, that some bigger, I mean, on Danske Bank in Estonia, for example, which had been used as a to, to, to launder hundreds of millions, if not billions of, of dollars in, in the proceeds of crime and corruption, that some, some household names are being used or have been used to facilitate the flow of dirty money. But many cases, the, the credit institutions are in jurisdictions with weak regulatory oversight, such as in Russia. And uh, many of your listeners will be aware of the risks of dealing with with banks or credit institutions that are funds that are not subject to the same regulatory oversight as they are here. So pointed out earlier, in many cases, the SPVs are, are managed by or used on behalf of foreign credit institutions, which are not regulated by the Irish Central Bank. And so they pose a a much bigger risk than their counterparts that are regulated in jurisdictions with more coherent, for want of a better phrase or word, regulatory framework or more reliable regulatory framework. Any Anyone would be f- familiar with the, the risks associated with managing funds on behalf of politically exposed persons too. And in many, most cases, they will be reporting those through their, their own, their internal compliance function. But as I said, there are emerging risks uh, such as the Use of life insurance policies that need to be need to be monitored closely, and you might find, for example, someone acting on behalf of a company holding such funds deciding to cash out early on, on pensions or on life insurance policies, even though they're taking a cut or paying significant fees to cash out early, or to take that cut so that the money is now clean and can be moved on elsewhere. And finally, John, turning our attention to the recommendations you make in the report and why you think they're important, perhaps you could highlight the the three that you think will make the biggest impact in Ireland. I would say I, I don't have three recommendations. Maybe there, there, there are quite a few more in there uh, than, than just three. And I think we'd do it just to service to the report itself to, to focus on three. But if I go back to the point I made earlier uh, about strategy, the first recommendation I would make is, and probably the most important point to make, is that there is coherent, time-bound and realistic strategy needs to be formulated by government that brings multiple stakeholders together, state agencies, regulated entities, civil society, and others, professionals as well, to to, to work together to prevent the, the laundering of the proceeds of international corruption, and then to help detect the, the, the proceeds of corruption, as well as to act on them, and ultimately to see the responsible repatriation, accountable repatriation of those proceeds to, to their victim countries. I've spoken about incentives and opportunities for, for money laundering. If we address those, then we help prevent money laundering in Ireland. If we can promote more transparency in our tax system, ensure that uh, the owners of special purpose vehicles are sharing details on their, uh, those acting on behalf of SPVs 
are sharing details of their beneficial owners, for example, then we will help deter the use of, of uh, these instruments as vehicles for uh, laundering dirty money. We've talked in the past as well about the need for a national anti-corruption bureau. And we also in this report talk about the need for specialised authority to regulate uh, designated non-financial businesses and professions currently that rests with the Department of Justice. And the problem we face and one of the hurdles we have to overcome in fully addressing corruption risks and um, ensuring that they're adequately mitigated is in not just devising a, a strategy, but also in creating an institution that has the resources it needs and the powers it needs to enforce the law effectively. And right now, corruption is considered to be just another economic crime. It's, it's thrown in there with credit card fraud when it's a much bigger problem in scale and its impact is much deeper. As I've spoken before, you cannot tackle climate change, for example, until you stop the flow of dirty money from Russia or Central Asia. There is no incentive. There's no reason why the Kremlin will, will uh, deal with this it's a much bigger problem with climate change for so long as senior officials are profiting from the oil and gas industry, illicitly profiting. And the same goes for officials and, and representatives in, in Central Asia in countries like Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan. And the same, same applies to West Africa or in the US, as we saw under the Trump administration. There is no incentive there for any country to tackle this problem so long as people are profiting from the problem. And Ireland as we, we point out in this report, is being used as a means by which people can hide their illicit profits. So we're not going to deal with these, these much bigger, bigger issues until we get to grips with this much larger problem. And that requires not just a strategy, as I said, but ring fence resources for an agency or agencies that will at the very least mitigate the risk of Ireland being used as a safe haven for, for some of the world's dirty money. We, we've talked of the need as well of the to, to, to outlaw the use of shelf companies. Ireland has been used as a company formation. Businesses have been used to help launder proceeds of crime, organized crime, human trafficking, arm, illegal arms sales, proceeds of global drugs trade, as well as the process of, of corruption. And we've called for the outlawing or the criminalization of the sale of shelf companies too. And there are some, some more my, some minor measures that could be taken, such as heightening the use of life insurance policies as a as a as a risk on the the national risk assessment register which is which is managed by the department of justice no one solution will fix this problem of course but i, I think it does come back to it comes back to the need to to formulate a coherent strategy which is informed by multiple stakeholders not just industry or the financial services sector or professions but also by those who are affected by by this issue and we're talking about representatives of civil society in countries such as Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan or Russia Nigeria and elsewhere and people who um traditionally wouldn't be be asked to brief brief the department on on on, on these issues but it, it, it comes back as I said earlier to the need for policymakers, for governments to take action first. Everyone else will follow. And this, this isn't a, just a, I should add, a, an issue for, for the Irish government to address our counterparts in the, in the EU and, and at the Commission and Council need to, to take this seriously or more seriously too.
Thank you to John for sharing the insights of the Safe Haven report from Transparency International. It's a topic that is, is very important and very interesting for our members. And thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the SCI. I do hope that you find this podcast interesting and, and useful. We would be very grateful if you would rate and review this podcast. Until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.